This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, January 18th, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. Adam Smith was more than an economist. He was a moral philosopher, and how he examined the world around him laid the groundwork for economists today. James Otteson is a professor of philosophy and economics at Yeshiva University in New York. We spoke following a forum on the life of Adam Smith held last week. In reading Theory of Moral Sentiments, uh, Smith asks a question that you wouldn't expect to be asked, and that sort of lays a foundation for the book, and it's not uh, how can we be moral, it's why are people moral? And that uh, seems like a very odd way to go about it, but as was pointed out at the forum, uh, Smith was an empiricist. So that would seem to serve an effort in answering this question rather than that question. Quite right. There are actually two questions that are related to that that animated Smith in the book. Um, So two phenomena that he noticed that he wanted explanations for. One was, um, why is it that people seem, in fact, for every single human being, you go over the course of your lifetime from a baby, from when you're an infant to when you're an adult, you start out having no morals whatsoever, no notion of morality, proper, improper, um, merit, demerit, nothing like that as, a, as, a, as an infant, to an adult with a very sophisticated syst- system and set of moral judgments. So what explains that transition? That's the first question. Um, and the second question is, why is it that across times and cultures and nations, it seems like there's significant overlap in moral judgments? Not, there isn't exact correspondence, but there's significant overlap. What's the explanation for that? So those are two empirical phenomena um, that he wanted to try to figure out what to get to the bottom of and explain. And that sort of uh, gives rise to this idea of like emergent order, uh, rules that exist without a, a conscious uh, planner that a, a lot of... Uh, economists beyond uh, Smith really, really grabbed onto. Right. And, uh, you know, th- these sorts of explanations weren't in the air. I mean, they weren't, they're quite readily uh, apparent to us. But to him, he, this is what he discovered, that it turns out, or the thought that he discovered, it turns out that people's moral sensibilities develop over time um, with, uh, as a result of interactions with other people. So I tell you my judgments of things, whether I like it, I don't like it, of people, of their behavior, of books and music. You tell me the same thing, and we share these judgments with so many people, and not just positive judgments, but especially critical judgments. And over time, this leads to an unintentional ordering, a kind of equilibrium of uh, moral sentiments. What was the term that he used, simple and natural? Was that it? The obvious and simple system of natural liberty. Uh, now, that's in the Wealth of Nations. He used that term in the, uh, that exact phrase in the Wealth of Nations. But um, I think that could very easily also describe, or at least it gives the hints of the kind of mechanism and explanation that he has for, um, general, for the general explanation for moral sentiments as well. Nobody sets out in actual life. So you have philosophers who try to construct systems of morality, but um, they're, the, they're the outliers. Normal people have no intention of developing a system of morality. What they do is they just respond to what they see in their environment, the people they, um, in, they have interactions with. Do people like it when I dress like this, or do they not like it? Do they like it when I tell jokes like this? Do they not like it? Do they like it at what, how long do I have to hold the door open for somebody before, before um, people think that I don't have to hold the door open anymore? How do we come to those sorts of general senses of how long? I mean, one of Smith's favorite examples is joke telling. That's why I mentioned it. But um, he brings up this example again and again, the theory of moral sentiments. 
Um, there seem to be rules about what kinds of jokes you can tell in set different sets of circumstances. Um, and in fact, we're exquisitely sensitive to the rules about this, even, the, even if beforehand you couldn't have said what the rules are. But if you spend 30 seconds thinking about it, you're going to say, oh, yeah, I can imagine what kinds of jokes it's okay to tell in this group and versus this group versus this group. But not just telling of jokes, also how long you should laugh at a joke. What's the rule? There are rules about that, too. If somebody because we have a sense of how long is too long, how long is not long enough. Well, this is the kind of thing that that Smith found fascinating. How do we come to these senses of how long is too long and how long isn't long enough, et cetera? And these are the these are examples of what we would we could later, what you and I later can recognize as um, emergent systems of order or unintended systems of order. In a modern context, the TV show Seinfeld built mm-hmm. made yeah. its. Uh, mark by exploiting the the right. unclear portions of those rules. It, social networking has introduced all sorts of problems that have to be sort of meted out right. among individuals about, well, do I friend this person? What are the rules? Right. And what are the rules? Right. And 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 what a Smithian would predict, what Smith would have predicted is that for these new kinds of environments like social networks, so um, these are new. They're just a few years old. These these um, new ways that human beings interact with each other. Um, there are going to have to be ways that people will figure out how to interact. And eventually, what a Smithian would have predicted is that there will be rules. People will develop spontaneously on their own in conjunction with other people. Um, rules about, I mean, things like who to friend and who not to friend and what, it, what it's okay to respond. and what. Um, think, think about texting. When you text, there are developing rules about um, capitalization and punctuation and spelling that are very different from the rules that you have when you write a newspaper column or write a college term paper. They're completely different. It'll have its own set of rules. Well, where will those rules come from? They won't. This is the genius of Smith's discovery, I think. They won't come from some enlightened person who thought real hard about what the rules should be and then delivered those rules to us and we accepted them. That's not how these rules. Instead, they come about from actual practice, human beings trying to serve their interests through this new medium, whatever it is, and they will develop on their own uh, rules that will help regulate their behavior. In The Wealth of Nations, Smith taught the famous example, the pin factory. He, and this, I guess, as was pointed out in the forum, this is seems to be sort of an example of uh, Smith taking him, taking his thinking as far as he thinks it ought to go and then stopping cold. He's talking about specialization, about, uh, you know, your specialization being limited by the extent of the market. But he's only talking about it in that industrial setting. Uh, in, in that example, he do, that, that actual insight within the book is far broader than just how, how a pin factory would operate. Absolutely. And you, you, we have to remember that Smith was writing right at the cusp, the beginning of commercial society. So he, he was making a lot of speculative guesses about what life would be like as commerce spread more widely and as market society spread more widely. So he could not have imagined, nobody could have imagined the kinds of things that markets would be able to produce in the 250 years since, um, since Smith wrote, uh, wrote the uh, Theory of Moral Sentiments and the Wealth of Nations. Um, but an idea like that, um, you're absolutely right, that this notion that the division of labor can lead to increasing production, 
um, and giving reasons why it can lead to increasing production. People, their skills increase. They they save time that they otherwise would have lost going from one task to it to the next. And then most especially, I think the the most important part of it is that it leads to human innovation, because as you spend, as any one of us spends more time, spends more and more time focusing on just a smaller range of tasks, um, we're going to try to figure out ways to make it easier for ourselves. We're going to look for devices, machines, as he called them, other ways that will en- enable us to either meet our production with less labor, our expectations with less labor, or maybe even surpass the production we had before. And these kinds of inventions are exactly the sorts of things that eventually he predicted but wasn't alive to see um, would lead to the kind of spectacular technological innovation that we've seen um, in market-based societies since his time. And different from the uh, Ricardo inside of comparative advantage, as you said, any one of us, uh, even given an identical skill set, uh, can can reap gain. We can all reap gains by identical people specialized. Absolutely, um, because well, for for the same reason. So it doesn't matter that um, even if you and I have the same skills, um, the amount of pins, to use his example, we'll be able to produce with both of us producing the, the pin from start to finish is far less than if we just divided the labor in half. You did one half of the job and I do the other half. Um, the production still goes up. And that's beneficial to all of us, to both you and me at the same time. How did uh, Smith's ideas uh, find their way into uh, the founding documents uh, of the United States? Uh, that's an interesting question. So the theory of moral sentiments, uh, Smith's first book, it came out in 1759. That book really made his reputation as a man of letters and a moral philosopher, um, both in Britain and in the, on the continent, um, the European continent. Um, he became – it was quite a reputation that was built on that book. Um, when The Wealth of Nations came out in 1776, um, which had been long expected – he'd been working on this book for at least a decade and everybody knew he'd been working on it. The book finally came out. Um, it came out to a, a great deal of acclaim. Um, several of the American founders, including people like Jefferson and Madison, knew the book. They, when the book came out, they read it. They had known of Adam Smith, um, Benjamin Franklin, um, uh, others had uh, – a few of them had actually met him. Um, they knew about him. When this book came out, it was a, a famous book that was written by the celebrated Dr. Adam Smith, a moral philosophy, professor of moral philosophy. Um, they read the book, and I think it resonated immediately with them. Especially, I mean, there are all sorts of ways that it resonated with them. It's a big book with a lot of ideas in it. Um, but one of them that I think that really did um, capture some of their attentions was the idea that um, that what often happens in um, in human society is that different special groups of special interests will try to arrange the social institutions, the political or economic institutions, to benefit themselves, often at the expense of others. And that this is a natural part of human nature, of humanity. It's not something that only happens sometimes. It always happens um, to all classes of people. So that a way to try to manage that, you can't get rid of that, but you might be able to manage it by reducing the opportunity to exploit institutions for a special interest, uh, to serve a special interest. And that I think, that's certainly part of the analysis of the Wealth of Nations, and I think that really resonated with the founders. James Otteson is a professor of philosophy and economics at Yeshiva University in New York. You can watch the full book forum at cato.org.